listen, we're talking about the most important thing that we do, and that is worship. Hmm. Why would we assume God is going to leave it up to us as to how he, he would be approached? No, rather, as you said earlier, number one, Christ is the head of the church. We, we ought to expect that he's going to determine how he wants to be worshiped. But even just from a broader theological standpoint, God is the one who has called us to worship. He's the one who initiates worship. He's the one who created us to worship. So why would we be surprised hmm. that he has given us the sufficient revelation to tell us how he wants us to draw near to him in worship? And so the regulative principle says, yes, he has. We trust in that. We trust in the sufficiency, the authority of what God has given us in his word. And so we're not going to go beyond what he has explicitly prescribed for us to do. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, Senior Pastor at Cornerstone Church in Joppa, Maryland. Where is Joppa, Maryland? Well, there actually isn't even a Joppa, Maryland anymore. There used to be a little town here. Now it's kind of rural, but we sit right on I-95, like the very worst possible part of I-95, I think, on the entire East Coast, just a little bit north of Baltimore. So that's where we are, Joppa, Maryland. It's beautiful in Joppa, Maryland. Uh, it's okay in Baltimore, depending on where you go. But that's more of the information than you needed. I have a guest today. His name is Scott Anyal. I'll uh, have him say hello in a minute, but uh, I read his book. Here's his book. Title is Foundations, Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship. I'm keen on this theme. I'm really interested on the theme. Loved the book. So I want to encourage you to maybe check out the book, get a copy, read it. Um, it'll be good for you. But uh, first, uh, Scott, just say hi to us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Pleasure, man. So just give us a little bio, would you? Like, where are you born and raised? That'd be a good place to start. Yeah, born and raised in Michigan, actually, um, and uh, then huh. spent uh, spent some time in the South, then ministry in Illinois, and then since 2008, have been in the South, South Carolina, Texas, now Georgia. So I grew up a Midwesterner, uh, still consider myself a Midwesterner, but have been in the South for quite a quite a quite a long time now. So. Having lived in those various places, Texas, uh, do, you, do you have a preference? Like, if you could really be in one of those, what would it be? You know, we, our family really loved Texas for many reasons. Uh, we lived in Fort Worth. Uh, it doesn't have the humidity of, you know, Houston and further south. Uh, it's pretty hot, but we, you know, we, we loved it. We, we like Georgia, too. Georgia's a little a little greener now, a little more rain, which is nice. Um, so, and we, we like South Carolina. So, we... I, you know, I miss some things about the Midwest. I miss autumn, uh, especially in Texas. We didn't have an autumn, but mm. I do not miss long, cold winters. So I, we I prefer uh, the warmth. <laughs> yeah. Long, cold winters with short, dark days, huh? So uh, you're married. You have family. You just mentioned family. Tell us about your family. Yeah. You got a wife, got some kids. Married to Becky uh, almost 19 years now. We've got four kids, 16, 14, 7, and 5. And boy, girl, boy, girl. Yeah. And um, where they're all they're all homeschooled, huh. and my wife does a great job with that. So yeah, love it. Just so you'll know, uh, my wife and I have four sons and a foster son, and uh, we raised some other boys along the way too. They just needed somewhere to live or whatever, and they lived with us. But we are up to um, thirteen grandchildren now, wow. so that's pretty cool. Cool. And they all live close by. We see them a lot. Oh man, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Hang in there. 
Uh huh. All right. So tell us a little bit about your education, please. Uh, where'd you go to college, grad school, and you have a PhD? We'd like to hear where you got that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got uh, an undergraduate degree. So my my educational and ministry sort of career and life has been always, and this this goes ties right into the book, a combination between kind of music and worship. Grew up in a very musical family and church, hmm. and then theology, scripture, and pastoral ministry. So I did an undergraduate degree in in church music at Bob Jones University in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. Then began ministry in Rockford, Illinois, west of Chicago. And while I was there, did a master's degree in musicology, which is a, basically a, a philosophy of aesthetics degree at Northern Illinois University. Uh, that sort of filled that out and then did a master's degree in theology and then a PhD at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, where I ended up then staying for 10 years on faculty there at Southwestern. Very good. So uh, staying with biography, we're going to talk about your career a little bit. And I'm just going to read from the back of your book here that uh, you're executive vice president and editor-in-chief of G3 Ministries. In a moment, we're going to ask you to tell us about that. And you are also, is this still true, professor of pastoral theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary? Yes. Yeah, I've been paying attention to that school. Uh, what is it? Just a couple years old, but uh, man, it's taken off with a bang and it's got my attention. I really like what they're doing. Yeah. I love what you're doing. You're part of it. Yeah. And you're also the author of some books, including, here's one, Let the Little Children Come, colon, Family Worship on Sunday, parentheses, and the other six days too, parentheses, sounds great. And another book, By the Waters of Babylon, colon, Worship uh, in a Post-Christian Culture. i got to read that one next. That sounds yeah. really good. Yeah. So um, there's some of your background and your career. So tell us tell us about G, G3. I did look it up because I didn't know this, that the three, the G3 stands for Gospel, Grace, and Glory. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Gospel, uh, grace, and glory. Right. So G G three. We're liking started... you already. That sounds like a What's sounds that? like a good triad. Yeah. Yeah. We're liking <laughs> you already. That sounds good. All right. Yeah. Um, G three uh, started twelve years ago or so uh, here at Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, as just a, a theology conference for the church, and has grown to be the lar- really the largest reformed conference in the country and perhaps the world. We've got our next national conference uh, is coming up in September, and we're anticipating probably 8,500 people uh, at that conference in September. And so it's it's been a crazy. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great conference. And then about 2018, 2019, it had grown so much and literally was being run by Josh Bice, who's the pastor here, and just some volunteers in the church. And by that time, it had grown to over 5,000, maybe 5,500. So they decided, hey, you know, the Lord is clearly doing something, but we also need help (laughs) to manage this. And so decided to expand the ministry, form a 501c3, hired Virgil Walker, who now is director of operations and oversees all of the conferences. So now we do an annual national conference every other year. On the off year, we do two smaller regional conferences in other parts of the country. We've got preaching workshops and worship workshops and all sorts of other events. So he sort of oversees that and then brought me on as executive vice president to sort of oversee administratively the ministry and then editor-in-chief in helping to now build a content producing ministry. So we have G3 Press, we're publishing books, 
We're publishing daily blog articles, podcasts, video resources, uh, all sorts of uh, curricula, teaching curricula. So we're really trying to provide resources that will educate, encourage, and equip God's people and his churches for his glory. Love it, man. So if people want to see you, they can just Google G3 Ministry and probably find you. Yeah, g3min.org is our website. We've got an app uh, as well with a lot of content and resources. So yeah, easy to find. Very good. So how many did you say? 8,000? We're, we're anticipating, we've got about 6,500 already registered. And so if if the trajectory happens like it normally does, we'll probably hit between 8,000 and 8,500 in September. Pretty awesome, man. I don't, yep. I don't happen to know. Do you know, are they getting 6,000 people at the master's seminary or at the master's conference? Yeah. I mean, shepherd shepherds conference, the, 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 their limitation is the size of the room. So uh, I think, I don't know how many, cause they, they do overflow, but I'm, so I'm not sure what the number is, but they just have a limitation because of seating. Hmm. We do our conference in a convention center in Atlanta. And so that gives us a little bit more you know, more seating. Yeah. Plus, you know, the, the, the joke is, you know, MacArthur's conference is ShepCon. G3 is SheepCon. <laughs> so we, we have a lot of pastors, but it's not just a pastor's conference. Uh, we get a lot of families who come, hmm. fa- parents bring their kids. So it's a kind of a little, little different vibe and a broader audience than just pastors. Yeah, I think you've got the other guys in the studio with me here drooling. They're like, oh, can we go this year? So, uh, Uh, Incidentally, yeah, I should go too. It sounds great. I went to my first Shepherds Conference. Thanks for giving me the name of it. I wasn't getting it there. First Shepherds Conference in probably 83, right around in there. Were you in high school in 83? I'm just kidding, but maybe, huh? No, I was three years old (laughs) in 83. (laughs) So it's even worse than I thought, (laughs) the gap here. uh, Back then, you'd be interested to know, back then the Shepherds Conference was held in what they now affectionately call the chapel, which I think they use for smaller wedding venues and stuff. That was the entire Shepherds Conference then, and I don't think we even quite filled that room back in 83. So, wow. They were were telling some of those stories even this year when we were there for Uh, Shepherds Conference. Very good. All right. So one more question about G3. So what's the overall purpose and goal? Why do you have it? Why are you having the conferences? What are you hoping it will accomplish? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we really, our goal is to educate, edify, and encourage God's people for his glory. So that's through the conferences, that's through workshops, that's through the content that we're, you know, we, we've just, lot the content production just started basically a year and a half ago. So we're really ramping that up. We also have a network of churches uh, that the purpose of that is, is for, you know, largely for church planting as well as encouragement and edification. And, uh, so that's, that's a network made up of 1689 Baptist reformed Baptist churches. And there's, uh, just North of 200 churches that are part of that network now. And so we have a monthly pastors meeting for encouragement, and then we help to connect churches who are involved in missions and church planting, um, so that we can, you know, work together mutually to, uh, to you know, extend the gospel both here and abroad. Nice. I love it. All right, we're going to turn to your book. Let me show it to people again. This is Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship. And uh, just in a broad way, let's start at the broad end of the funnel here. So uh, why did you write it? What problem does it address? What problem is it trying to solve? What's it about? Yeah. So uh, I really wrote it as out of a desire to introduce the concept of reformed worship 
to maybe people who haven't thought through that that topic carefully. Um, I, you know, I've seen the the interest obviously in reformed theology has been growing, you know, for the last 10, 15 years. And usually, usually how that happens is it kind of begins with soteriology. People mm-hmm. kind of realize the sovereignty of God. They realize the sovereignty of God and salvation. For a lot of people, that's kind of where it stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people go further, maybe it then seeps down into ecclesiology. We begin to see the value of expository preaching. We see the value of pl- plurality of eldership mm-hmm. uh, and those sorts of aspects. Uh, but then again, for a lot of people in the pews, but even pastors and churches, that's kind of the extent of Reformed theology. Worship seems to me to be kind of the last thing mm. that gets reform. So you, so I see a lot, and I had students like this when I taught at Southwestern, uh, still the case at, at GBTS. I see a lot of guys who are Reformed theologically. They're good, sound expositional preaching. They've got you know really good theology and good teaching. And then their worship doesn't match. Their worship is not reformed according to scripture, like the other aspects of their theology and ministry are. And so I wanted to write this book to sort of introduce the, the what I consider the fundamental foundational theological principles regarding worship um, that I hope will, will help to spur and push otherwise reformed-minded people along to also take the next step to reform their worship according to Scripture as well. Very good. like that. So um, this might be a novel concept to some people who are listening to this podcast. Um, The idea that gathered corporate worship needs to be rooted in the teachings of Scripture. In other words, we can't just say, hmm, Mm -hmm. what what would the culture like? What would our neighbors like? Hoist a moist finger aloft. Which way are the winds blowing? Let's let's give it to them and get them in here, and it's all for the gospel. It's so they'll hear the gospel. So so, uh, why do we not start there? Where do we start? Scripture, obviously. Why do we we want to root corporate worship in Scripture? Yeah, that has to be the starting point. And again, I think, you know, if, if, if pastors or even, you know, regular Christians, if they're reformed minded at all, they recognize, you know, the necessity of the five solas. They recognize the authority and sufficiency of scripture as mm. the starting point. And so they've, they've already probably applied the authority and sufficiency of scripture to things like their soteriology and and their ecclesiology and other other aspects of their theology, but for some reason, huh. when it comes to worship, we we've, we've been so influenced, mm. I think, mm. by three dominant uh, factors, especially in this country, and that is revivalism, mm. church growth, pragmatism, and then Pentecostal theology. We've been influenced by those three movements, perhaps even unwittingly to such a strong degree that we, we've we bought into the idea that when it comes to worship, um, we want to make sure that the lyrics of our songs are good and our preaching is expositional, but everything else is just open for, you know, it's all neutral. It's just whatever we like. There, there's nothing in scripture that, that ought to inform how we're actually worshiping. And so we end up with a pragmatism that says whatever it takes to accomplish our end goal is what we're going to do. 
And our end goal might even be noble. Like we want to glorify God and we want to see people saved and the disciple. Great. But then if we take in a pragmatic approach, um, rather than a, a, an approach that says scripture is sufficient for even this, mm-hmm. then who knows, you know, what, what direction we might end up going. Uh, and it's led to a lot of chaos uh, in you know what what has what has become of evangelical and especially Baptist worship today. Yeah. So that our, our doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is an important maybe like dividing line. It's a watershed. Absolutely. Um, if you hold to the f- sufficiency of Scripture, you'll land over here on all these issues. If you don't hold to it, Scripture isn't sufficient. I've got to go to culture or whatever. You're going to land over there on a whole lot of issues. Would that be? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I start the very first chapter, the very first foundational principle is the authority of Scripture. And I make I make the case, I make the biblical case for why we have to make sure that everything about our theology and practice of worship is regulated by the Word of God. That's, that's the important starting point. Yeah, amen. I guess related to that, of course, is the idea that, well, who's head of the church? Well, I'm not. Well, culture isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, revivalist le- preachers aren't. Who's the head? Christ is head. So right. as head, only Jesus Christ has the right, has the wisdom, has the, the privilege of telling the church, here's what I want you to be. That's a novel concept for a lot of people. Yeah. Like I was at, a, at an event with Fellowship of Christian Athletes last night at a huge church down the road from us. I mean, huge. And uh, I, you know, I know a lot about that church. I online visit their services now and then, see what they're doing. And I don't, I don't think anybody there has ever imagined the concept, for some reason, that um, Christ is head of the church, and that means he tells us how to do it. Right. So we really need to spread that message, don't we? Only yeah. Christ gets to tell us how to do it. That, so that, that was, so let's talk about this. Go ahead. I was going to say, that, that was my experience teaching you know, at Southwestern Seminary for 10 years. I would get students in my class, and I would start teaching this principle, and it's, it's novel. It's not what we're used to because we've been so impacted by these other movements. Um, but when you give it, when you give a few minutes of biblical thought and then even historical thought and look at, for instance, what the reformers said, and even as a Baptist, our Baptist forefathers taught, we see very clearly that this, this issue of the authority of scripture, even over what we do in worship, like you said, derived from the authority of Christ himself as our head is, is a really important fundamental principle. Yep. Amen. So uh, you you used the word regulated by, or the words regulated by a moment ago. So let's talk about this thing called the regulative principle of worship. Now, yeah. let me give you my, my on-the-street average guy definition of it. It means when we want to know what to do in corporate worship, uh, we look in the Word, and we only do the things that we find in the Word, nothing yeah. else. It's got to be in the Word or we don't do it. So just to let you know, Scott, and let the hearers know, it's interesting. So I was not, I, I, I was saved in a fundamentalist kind of Baptistic church, went off to a fundamentalist Bible college, went from there to a pretty fundamentalist seminary, Capital Bible Seminary. It was an East Coast Dallas seminary for the most part, but a lot of Bob Jones guys were teachers and stuff. So um, uh, what what happened there is um, we never heard of this thing called the regulative principle of worship, but I just started, I got to Bible college, brand new Christian, just started reading and reading and reading and reading and reading the Bible and without ever hearing of the regulative principle, without being taught this, my school didn't teach this at all, I came to realize, hey, there are things in Scripture that tell us what we're supposed to do in church. 
And I had my own regular, it was the Bible's regulated principle, and it was right, but nobody ever taught it to me. You can get it pretty easily if you just really read the Word and look yeah. for, all right, so what's church supposed to be? How are we supposed to do church? What are we supposed to do in church? So the regulated principle is uh, corporate worship is to be regulated by Scripture. What do you want to say about that? You want to add to that? Change that? Yeah, no. The, the the one of the easiest shorthand ways of articulating the regulative principle is whatever is not prescribed is forbidden. So we have to look for clear prescriptions in Scripture for what we ought to be doing in worship. The the opposite position, which which you know we th- these these two positions sort of came to a fore during the Reformation because the the Protestant reformers agreed on so much. They agreed on the five solas. They agreed in rejecting the abuses of Rome. Where they largely disagreed was on the issue of worship. And so you get people like Luther and then in England, the Anglican Church, who uh, who argued for now what we now call more of a normative principle of worship, mm. which says whatever is not forbidden is permitted. So basically, we can do anything in worship that we believe is wise and helpful as long as it's not explicitly forbidden. But the opposite position articulated by men like John Calvin and those in the Reformed tradition uh, and then also the Puritans in England, the Separatists in England, and then finally in the 17th century, particular Baptists in England, the regulative principle argued that whatever is not pre- uh, prescribed is forbidden, again, because, l- listen, we're talking about the most important thing that we do, and that is worship. Hmm. Why would we assume God is going to leave it up to us as to how he He would be approached? No, rather... As you said earlier, number one, Christ is the head of the church. We we ought to expect that he's going to determine how he wants to be worshipped. But even just from a broader theological standpoint, God is the one who has called us to worship. He's the one who initiates worship. He's the one who created us to worship. So why would we be surprised that he has given mm-hmm. us the sufficient revelation to tell us how he wants us to draw near to him in worship? And so the regulative principle says, yes, he has we trust in that. We trust in the sufficiency, the authority of what God has given us in his word. And so we're not going to go beyond what he has explicitly prescribed for us to do. Yep, solid. So in your book, you uh, you cite the wording of two uh, older confessions of faith, the 1644 London Baptist Confession and then the 1689 London yep. Baptist Confession. Let me read a little part. Here's from the 1644. Here's how Our Baptist forefathers worded this whole thing. The rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship and service of God and all other Christian duties is not man's inventions, opinions, devices, laws, constitutions, or traditions unwritten whatsoever, but only the Word of God contained in the canonical scriptures. That's a nice statement. You all ought to buy the book and read that statement again. <laughs> and then on page 9, you, you cite the London Baptist Confession of 1689. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So I read those to, to say, well, that's, that's what some of our Baptist forefathers, forebears wrote. 
But what you just said about the regulative principle is what a lot of people have been saying about it for a long, long time. Hey, man, we only do what is what is commanded in Scripture when we gather for worship. What are, give us a list, what are the God-ordained elements of a new covenant worship service? Yeah. So again, I mean, this is something that's not difficult, difficult to find because we have given to us in the New Testament in you know for the new testament church in the epistles which are written for our instruction to tell us as churches what we ought to be doing right paul even says that in first timothy i write these things so that you may know how to behave in the household of god mm-hmm. gives us very clear instructions so the first is uh, is the is is the as the reading of the word of god right the public reading of scripture first timothy 4 uh, verse 13 and there are other passages as well give attention to the public reading of scripture uh, and then he continues in 1 Timothy 4.13, give yourself also to exhortation and teaching. And later in 2 Timothy, preach the word. So we've got the reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture. Third, uh, again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul commands that prayers and supplications and intercessions be uh, be lifted to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So prayers, public praying of scripture. And again, you find similar commands in, in Colossians and Ephesians, where you have the, the commands to uh, to pray as well. Uh, fourth, we have a clear command in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 to sing in the context of the body, in the context of the one another gatherings of the church. Mm-hmm. We have a clear command to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, and, then, uh, and then fifth, we have uh, baptism that's part of the, uh, the Great Commission, mm-hmm. go therefore and, and make disciples, baptizing them so that that joins new believers into the church. And then finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find that Paul tells the Corinthians that what Christ delivered to him, he also delivers to us, the church, and that is observation of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so I would say those, uh, those six elements are clearly prescribed. I think you also could add giving. Yes. Uh, the New Testament clearly prescribes giving. It clearly tells us we ought to give. Um, and so it's perfectly acceptable to give in a corporate worship service. The only caveat I would I would add is that I don't think you can make a, a slam dunk case that you have to take up offerings in a service right. because it's not as clearly prescribed as other things. But clearly we're, we're supposed to give corporately. And so that's also a prescribed element. Uh, so I would say there's six or seven clearly prescribed biblical elements of worship. We have to do all of those things. To fail to do those things is to disobey mm. clear commands of the Lord. And then again, based on those principles of the authority of Scripture, we ought not to add any additional elements of worship beyond that which is prescribed for us in the New Testament. Yeah, amen to that. So uh, I'm glad you said that you don't think it means we we necessarily, we must take up offerings in the services. Because actually, since COVID, we don't. Yeah. Since COVID, we stopped passing a plate or whatever, and we use other means. People have apps, people who have their banks and, and so on. So we're not taking up offerings anymore. And we're kind of liking that. It's like, you know, we're really not about your money. We're really right. about your life and your soul. We're so not about your money that people who are new at our church come and ask, don't, how do you guys survive? Don't you take up an offering? Oh, you can use the Tithely app. It'll work. But <laughs> yeah. would you also add to the list, at the end of some of Paul's epistles, which were to be read in the churches, he gives announcements. Hmm. I'm going to do this, greet that person, <laughs> send that over there. I'm coming then. 
Is yeah. it legitimate to do some announcements in the service, or are yeah, they, are I mean, common I elements that all I don't know. Need? I, yeah, so it, traditionally, you know, for instance, in the in the London Baptist Confession, in the Westminster Confession, and in others in kind of that Reformation era who wrote about this, uh, they differentiate between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. Right. So the circumstances are just the practical necessities, like we need light. We need places to sit. Mm-hmm. We have physical Bibles, hymnals, maybe screens, a pulpit. These are just the physical necessities that enable us to accomplish the elements of worship. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I I would put something like announcements as necessary circumstances. Um, now, I think in many churches, there are a lot of announcements given that are probably not necessary. Um, I would also <laughs> urge churches to, to, if you're going to give announcements, to do so in a in a reverent way that befits the reverence of the service. So, you know, all that to say, just mm. because it's a circumstance doesn't mean, okay, this is not worship anymore. This is just a circumstance. So we're going to have this skit to announce the upcoming ladies retreat or something. Eh, it's still a corporate worship service, right? Um, but, yeah. uh, but, but I could, you know, I could see a place for announcements. Now I will say this similar to what our discussion a moment ago about the offering, I would challenge churches, see what happens, take, take them out for a while, put them, put them in your bulletin, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, give announcements in other settings, retrain your people to make sure that they're paying attention to the list of announcements in the bulletin and see what happens. You might find that you don't need to do them in corporate worship because even though they might be a a kind of a, a necessity, they they do um, they they can even the most reverent you know giving of the announcements just break the 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 gospel yeah. flow uh, of yes. the service whether you do mm. them at the beginning or the end I, I would say you know if you're gonna do them at least do them at the beginning or the end don't smack them in the middle and interrupt everything you know um, <laughs> so I think they're permissible as circumstances if done reverently but I would challenge I would challenge pastors to to see what happens if you retrain your people to just pay attention to the announcements in the bulletin and uh, and take them out of the service. See what happens. I, th- I think you could do it. Yeah. I like what you're saying. There is no good place to put announcements right. in the service. There's nowhere you really want them yeah. because there are other things you're trying to do and you don't want to break that the concentration on the Lord and on worship, on his word. But here's what we do, incidentally. So there are 12 things, I'm making that up, that we could announce every week for yeah. sure. Um but we don't want much time spent on announcements. We don't want you know forty minutes of announcements and ten minutes of sermon. Right, That'd be a bad deal. So, uh, so we we try to limit our announcements to two per week, and they're rather briefly yeah. presented. Once in a while, I notice I've been noticing lately that they're creeping up to three more often, and I'm thinking I got to talk to somebody. You got to mm-hmm. work harder. You got to keep that down to two. And we're training our people to. Here's where you can find out what's going on. Go to the website, look at events. Right. So instead of making announcements, go to our events page, and there they are. Yeah. They're all listed chronologically by date and all that. But we do still have announcements in our service, and they are an intrusion, and they are a bother, even though they're skillfully done. Uh, I'm listening to you. Maybe we should try. <laughs> You're, I'm scaring myself. Here. Maybe we should try not having them. Gotta, so I want to go back to you retrain um, your people, right? I mean, you got to you got to just retrain them. Make sure you're paying attention to the, yeah. the printed announcements. Here's where you online, look. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 
we're talking about the regulative principles still, Scott. And so I want to ask you some follow-up questions on that. We're only supposed to do and worship what God has expressly ordained in his word. So, and we're, and we're supposed to do all of those elements, mm-hmm. right? We're supposed to do them all. We might not have a baptism every Sunday, but we ought to have baptisms, right? right. So, so what if, what if there's a church that I am referring to a church in my area? I, I weekly stop in on a church in my area online and look at their service from the previous Sunday. What's going on over there? So I'll kind of know what, what's out there. We have guests showing up at our church, new people attaching themselves to us. Uh, lots of them these days. And, uh, they'll tell me, well, I came from XYZ Church down the road. Ooh, now i got to go check that one out. I want to know where they came from, what was going on, what kind of ministry were they under. So here are some things that I saw in a, in a local church here kind of recently. What if there is a Sunday where there's no sermon, but instead there's a fireside chat between the senior pastor and a Christian counselor, a woman, incidentally, a Christian counselor, and they're talking about the Christian life in a chatting, kind of interviewing sort of way. Uh, so how would you evaluate that? Yeah. Well, this is, so I mentioned earlier the distinction between elements and circumstances of worship. The other category that is often uh, given in, again, the confessions and, and those who write about it uh, are the forms of worship. So we've got the elements, but then you've got to do those elements. You're going to preach in a certain way. You're going to sing in a certain way. You're going to read the scriptures in a certain way. You're going to pray in a certain way. Even even observing baptism in the Lord's Supper, you do that in a certain way. Those are the forms. And here again, while um, while there's more certainly more flexibility because you're not going to preach the same sermon every week, uh, and, and you're not just going to read the Bible. You're, you're, we're supposed to preach, yes. And so a pastor is going to going to do that in his own words, in the language of the people. So there's some cultural flexibility. Nevertheless, Scripture still ought to guide and regulate the way in which we perform the elements of worship, not just anything goes. So let's consider preaching. What what kind of preaching is prescribed in the New Testament? Well, I mean, even the word keruso itself is the idea of proclaiming, of heralding a message. Yes. Okay, well, that ought to then characterize the nature of what we're doing when we preach. It's not a fireside chat. It's not just a conversation. It's not an interview. It's not, you know, a guy just sitting there kind of having a, a little a little talk. No, it is proclamation. It is heralding. So that, you know, again, that might differ from first person to person based on personality and, and culture to culture. Right. But it still has to be heralding. And so I would evaluate something like that. Here's a fireside chat. I mean, there's a lot of problems with what you described. Um, but, you know, just from the nature of the form itself, okay, does it fit the kind of preaching that the New Testament prescribes? And I would want to say, okay, if our authority is scripture, then that's that's not preaching. That might have a place somewhere else, but not in the corporate mm-hmm. gatherings of the church. Amen to that. So here's another question. Same church. I, I'm kind of being hard on that same church. And I'm not a curmudgeon, and I don't think you're a curmudgeon. You don't come across as a curmudgeon. I'm not out here to just grouch and complain about everything all the time. But I am concerned that so many people go to churches that might have a thing like the fireside chat instead of a sermon and have no idea that there's anything wrong with that. Right. And I just wish wish they had, had some way of teaching them, getting to them that, you know what, that's not what the head of the church has ordained. Right. It's not what he wants. That's not what's best for your souls. So same church. I noticed on a Sunday morning, one week I just happened to dip in and look, what are they doing? What did they do this past Sunday? 
And instead of the pastor preaching, they had a Christian comedian do his act in the place of the sermon. I think I know what you're going to say about that, but say it, please. Well, I mean, exact, exact same standard and exact same problem, right? And, and perhaps even worse. I mean, maybe at least in a fireside chat, the goal is to communicate truth. Uh, here with a comedian, I mean, we've got explicit, Paul, Paul commands the church at Ephesus, you know, not, not to engage in coarse jesting and, you know, these sorts of things where we're sort of making fun of serious, you know, serious realities. I'm not against comedy. I'm not against laughing. There definitely is a place for that. But again, yeah. that's not preaching. That's not been prescribed for the New Testament church. And in fact, there, there's an argument to be made that's, a, that's actually been forbidden, uh, this kind of jesting in something as serious as the corporate worship of God's Amen. people. So here's another one. And I'm staying at the same church. I'm just making it easy. I'm staying at one church now. <laughs> so I also noticed recently that they're advertising this summer. It's going to be summer at the movies. So each sermon will focus on a recent movie and talk about the movie and base the sermon around the plot and the theme and the characters in the movie. So uh, same question. Chime in on that one, would you? Yeah. I mean, similar answer, but a little different too. I mean, again, that's not preaching as we have it described in the New Testament, number one. Number two uh, we have explicit uh, prohibitions of using visual imagery like that, you know, in the second commandment, for example, as an aid to worship. So you've got, you've got some problems there. And then number three, we're supposed to preach the word, right? We're not, we're not preaching some cultural activity. We're not preaching a movie. We're preaching the word. Um, so it, it, that just, that fails on, on multiple uh, lines of thought. For sure. So here's another thing, and this isn't just the church down the road from me, though it has been that one, but uh, some number of churches, even some very prominent churches, will say close on the Sunday that's close to Christmas Day or close on other occasions. We're giving our people a rest that day. Y'all mm -hmm. just stay home, be together, read the Bible, say some prayers. What do you think of closing church on a Sunday? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, not only that, that at very minimum, again, disobeys clear commands of the Lord. We have a clear command in, a, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? Um, obviously, if there, there's occasions in which you, you can't gather, um, you know, a tornado hits your right. town Sunday Got morning, okay, you're not going to gather, right? So we're, let's yeah. put those caveats aside. But something like a holiday, giving people a break, not only does that disobey the clear command, but it fails to recognize the significance of what we're doing when we gather. This is not a social club. This is not just a gathering of some like-minded friends for some stimulating talk and, and fellowship. Uh, we are meeting with the sovereign ruler of the universe at his command, right? He, he has called us, he has commanded us to draw near to him and worship through his son. Uh, so, I mean, even just the language, we're giving people a break, you know, and you'll hear people say, well, you know, for instance, our musicians or other people who are involved in leadership, they, they work so hard week in and week out. Okay, fine. So do without them for a week, sing a cappella, hmm. you know, but gather, hmm. right? Yeah. If you need to give, I get it. You know, even pastors get tired. I get it. People who are involved in ministry get tired, but worship is not tired. It is not something to, to, to need a break from. Um, so maybe, maybe what that's telling you, if your if your production team is exhausted, maybe you ought to do without the production team. Maybe you ought to stick with the clear biblically prescribed means of grace that we have, 
and 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 obey the command to gather together for the purpose of corporate worship. Don't close. Let's stay. A related question. So suppose there's a pandemic <laughs> and the civil magistrate shuts you down. Do you shut down? And I'm going to imagine most churches, maybe all churches, probably would initially immediately shut down because we don't know what's going on here. Right. We, we better just wait. Let's evaluate this. Let's see what's going on. But what if your civil magistrate tells you to stay closed for a year or two years? Meanwhile, the liquor store is open. The other thing's open. The other thing's open. Um, and so you feel like, wait a minute, they're just shutting down churches here to shut down churches. They're like taking advantage of the pandemic to close our mouths and stop the word of God, trying to chain the word. So I, I really slanted that and didn't I answered my own question and asking it. But do, right. do you agree? Would you chime in on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is that the civil magistrate, which is ordained by God, has been given authority by God, Romans chapter 13, nevertheless has a particular jurisdiction over which God has given it authority, and that jurisdiction is not the church. The civil majesty has no authority over the church. Now, like you, like you mentioned, and that, like I alluded to earlier, there there might be cases in which we're we're not going to meet for a, for a good reason. Um, but I really, I was really thankful to live in Texas during during COVID, because what uh. what our governor did was was exactly right. What he 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 did give a lockdown order, but he explicitly um, did not give that to churches. He said, "I am I am not mandating that churches must close because that's not wow. my authority." Now he said, I think you ought to, I would encourage you to, you know, 15 days to slow the spread and all of that, but I am not mandating it. And that was exactly the right thing to do. So our church, we did uh, not meet for a couple of weeks. Cause like you said, we, you know, we didn't, nobody knew what was going on the 15 days to slow the spread so that we don't overrun the, ho- the hospitals seem to make good sense. So we voluntarily chose not to meet for a couple of weeks but then, like you said, very quickly, once it w- once it became clear that the that the government was overstepping its jurisdiction, especially on a national level and in many states, allowing other things to open while at the same time closing churches, we just came right back and gathered. Yeah, I'll just go on record for our people and say I'm one hundred percent in support of what Grace Community Church and John MacArthur did in Southern California. They actually they fought the law yeah. and they won. Yep. So it was pretty good. And they were they were reopening for worship. Actually, you probably heard the story. At least this is how John MacArthur tells it. Yeah, you know, he was preaching to an empty room. I was doing some of that. It was abysmal, by the way. <laughs> I'm a very extroverted person and preaching the chairs is horrible. And and one of our some of our people they got their kids to make little little heads and little bodies and they, they taped them to chairs. All around the so I'd be preaching to people. Anyway, it was horrible. And John MacArthur was preaching to an empty room, and he said tri- people started to trickle in, yeah. and then more, and then more, and then pretty soon they were filling up. And I feel like, bless those people, man. Mm-hmm. We gained a lot of people, by the way, during the pandemic, yeah, because their church stayed closed, and they wanted to go worship God somewhere. Yeah. And a whole lot of them have stayed with us, so that's been good. I'm going to turn corners a little bit here. Got to keep an eye on the clock. And um, so... What is the purpose of corporate worship? Who is the focus of corporate worship? Obviously, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But then, is gathered worship for 
for the people who are far from God? Is it primarily for seekers? Is it primarily a place for evangelism? So evangelism trumps every other concern. Right. Uh, don't preach on that because that wouldn't be good for evangelism. That might unnecessarily offend people. Don't mm-hmm. mention that and so on. Or is it is it rather for the people of God primarily to edify them and so on? Speak to that issue, yeah. would you? I think this is a critically important point and, and really a central part of the book because I think most people get get the answer to that question wrong. Yes. Which then has a domino effect, a domino effect everything else. Like if if it's just about bringing in seekers, then why would we limit ourselves to only what the Word of God says? Because that's not going to attract seekers. Or you know we could go we could go down that trail. But if we understand the biblical nature of worship, as I argue in the book, as God's people meeting for communion with God through the means that he has prescribed, that is the the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the nature of worship. If we understand that, then that also has domino effect in a good way. We realize, okay, this this is not primarily for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers are welcome Right. And especially if, 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 as I argue in the book, both biblically and historically, if our worship is gospel-shaped and gospel-centered, then that's going to be profoundly evangelistic, even for an unbeliever. Amen. But, but never do we design what we do in a corporate worship service based on what unbelievers want any more than what Israel did in its temple worship was based on what the unbelieving pagans wanted. Hmm. And the New Testament calls us, as the New Testament church, the temple. It's deliberately using that that as an analog to the Old Testament temple uh, to draw some comparisons. And this is one of them. What was the temple? It was a gathering of God's people to, to renew their covenant relationship with him, their communion with him through the means that he had prescribed. And so worship is ultimately for God to give him glory. But corporate worship in particular, then, its purpose is to nurture and cultivate that covenant relationship that we have with God through Christ, through what we do in the corporate worship service. It's not primarily for unbelievers. Uh, it's for Christians to nurture and cultivate our, our life of communion with the Lord. Yeah. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to take us to, uh, in our thoughts, to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says yeah. you know, he's, he's telling them, how to conduct themselves in gathered worship. And he uses the word for edification, for edification. Do it, mm-hmm. And he it kind of summarizes everything he's teaching where he says, let everything be done for edification, which is building up believers. Um, he, he doesn't even mention do it for God in that whole chapter. We know right. we're doing it for God. Our worship right. is unto God. It's God-centered. But he focuses on build up brothers and sisters in Christ. And the only unbelievers in the service are an if. Right. He says, and if an unbeliever shows up, like we're not building the whole service around, we expect thousands of them to be there. Now, they're an if. And my thought is, we will have non-Christians show up, but they're probably this person. Um, They're either the child of a believing family who gets dragged into church, or uh, if they're an adult, there's probably somebody in our church has been sharing Christ with them Mm -hmm. and sharing some life with them. And that person is now at the point where they're thinking, if they have any sense at all, they're thinking, you know, I'm getting interested in this whole Jesus thing. And I know if I, if, I, if I really go with Jesus Christ, if I turn to him, it's probably going to mean church in my life, isn't it? I better go visit that church. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, can I come to your church with you? So the people who are actually showing up are probably at a point where they're wanting to, they're wanting to know what's real church going to be. Right. So we don't want to show them phony church. We don't right. want to show, here's special church for you non-Christians. Yeah. It doesn't have the real elements in it. We want to show them the real deal, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You agree with that um, idea? Yeah. And and that chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 is so critical for this discussion. We, we tend to we tend to gravitate away from it because of all the landmines in it, tongues and prophecy and women can't speak and all this and what to do with that. But but it's really an important chapter because if you think about it, it is the only complete, full, single chapter in the New Testament that is entirely about what we ought to be doing in worship. And what you said is exactly yeah. right. Over and over and over again, Paul says the poor purpose of corporate worship is building up, building up, building up edification. Everything that we do in the context of corporate worship is to build up believers. And, and you're right, the unbelievers is an if, and it even tells us what will happen, you know, what we pray will happen when an unbeliever comes and sees us worshiping our God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that that unbeliever will fall on his face and say, God is really among you and, and come to faith himself. Yep. So I always say there's nothing more profoundly evangelistic than God-centered worship in which God's people are renewing their covenant relationship with him through Christ are listening to his word, are responding with songs and prayers of thanksgiving and supplication, that itself is profoundly evangelistic without redesigning what we're doing. You know, you, you get a person attending and you're just going to give them what they already can get anywhere else in the world. No, you want to yeah. you want to give them what they can't get anywhere else. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I deeply resonate with, with what you're saying. So, Scott, we have to land the plane soon here. So, um, uh, to what extent do Christians, when they gather, do they participate in the worship? In other words, we don't do all the worship for them up front. We don't have the priestly cast, and we do the right. worship, and they just passively observe. Uh, in what ways are they supposed to be engaged in the worship and they're participating in the worship? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. that you know The real irony of a lot of contemporary worship today is exactly what you, you alluded to a moment ago, and I, I deal with this in the book, and that is— we've sort of fallen back into a similar error that medieval Roman Catholic worship had. And that it's, it's, it's sometimes called sacerdotalism, right? The idea that we, you know, we worshipers are coming, we're sitting in a pew and we're watching as the worship is being performed by others, you know, up there. So in Roman Catholicism, they would come, the priests are up there, the priests are doing everything. The people, maybe they're mumbling along with parts of the liturgy. They probably don't even understand the liturgy because it's in a language they don't know. And so they're just watching as the holy priests perform the worship on their behalf and hoping to sort of gain some benefit from it. Ironically and sadly, much of contemporary worship has fallen into the same error. People come, they spectate. You've got this professional band up there. You've got professional worshipers who are actually doing the worship. It's so loud, the, the, the auditorium is dark. So the people, maybe they're mumbling along, you know, I call it karaoke worship, you know, maybe they're <laughs> singing along. But frankly, if the, people, if the people stopped singing, it wouldn't change anything hmm. uh, because the professional worship is taking place on the stage. That is completely contrary to what we find in the New Testament. What we find in the New Testament is that every believer is a priest which then strongly implies that every person ought to be actively engaged in the corporate worship service. Obviously, you have to have leaders. You're going to have somebody preaching. If you've got instrumentalists, somebody's got to got to lead that. The instrument, but even there, if you've got instrument, you know, if you've got instruments in worship, the goal of that is not performance. The goal of that is not that that that's the worship. The goal of that is to support the singing of God's people. 
And so you want to choose instruments and even the way that those instruments are played so that they will support the robust singing of God's people. So whether it's the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, singing, all of the elements of worship, every person in the congregation ought to be engaged at every moment. So even when you've got an individual perhaps up front who is offering a corporate prayer you know, on behalf of the people, still everybody in the congregation ought to be having minds engaged, saying amen in their hearts at, at least, if not verbally, congregational singing. Everybody ought to be singing during the sermon. You know, you're not just spectating, you're engaging with the word. During a scripture reading, you're engaging with that. Um, it, it, so in that sense, worship is work. It ought to be work, but it is joyous work because we are renewing our covenant relationship with our God through these means of grace that he has given. And that, again, is something for every single believer to be engaged with in every single moment of the service. Amen, brother. Well, this has been excellent. I kind of, I, I don't want it to end. I'm enjoying this so much and it's so healthy and so beneficial, but I got to draw it to a close. So let me ask you to just, here's, here's your book again. Yeah. Just uh, talk about, in a general way again, what's this book about? What's the main point? Yeah. So five key foundational principles of corporate worship that I lay out, again, to sort of introduce these key theological ideas of what we might call reformed worship, worship that is reformed according to scripture, biblical authority, understanding the nature of our worship as communion with God, understanding what we just talked about, the fact that every member must be a participation, a participant in worship, understanding the sort of covenant renewal dialogue that takes place in corporate worship. And then finally, understanding the spiritual essence of worship, that what we are doing is actually through Christ joining in with the worship of heaven when we gather together here on, on earth. And so it, it's my prayer that those five fundamental theological ideas about the nature of worship will then help pastors and God's people in generally in general think more biblically about worship and then engage in worship in a way in which everything they do is reformed according to the word of God. Excellent summary. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for being my guest today on Grounded. Really enjoyed it. And um, thank you all for being part of Grounded today. We come out about twice a month and you can find us on all the major platforms. And if you like us, then here's a way you can show us you like us. Share us with a friend. Thanks so much for being here today.